Hi, this is Lily, and I'm a member of the Beacon Church. Welcome to our podcast. If you're in the neighborhood, we'd love to meet you. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 10.30, or 12 noon. We are located at 65 East Williston Avenue in East Williston, New York. For more information, visit us at visitbeacon.com. See you soon. Good morning, everyone. I am Robert Kelly, one of the pastors here at the church. If uh, we haven't met, I'm so glad uh, that you're here and uh, joining us for the continuation of our series called The Me I Want to Be. It's uh, based on a book by John Ortberg, same uh, title of uh, the book, Me I Want to Be, and I'd encourage you guys to uh, pick it up and give it a read. It's a great, a great book. Some uh, all of us, I know, will be familiar with the massive statue of David done by Michelangelo. It is one of the preeminent works of the Renaissance. It's over 500 years old, and uh, it is a spectacular piece of work. I uh, have just, as I was kind of thinking through it and coming up with this, uh, with this in my head, I was doing a little reading about it because uh, I had seen some pictures like this next one that surprised me because of the scale of the thing. And I, you know, it's like a 17-foot statue. I sort of had a picture that it was life-size, not, you know, three times life-size. But, uh, you know, this is one of the preeminent uh, works of art. And I've heard sculptors, uh, of, I've heard of sculptors who have explained their craft as the removal of what isn't, rather than of the creation of something. Meaning they, they, see a, they, they see a block of stone and they see what is there. If you're carving out an angel, they see the angel that is in the stone. And their job is to remove everything that isn't angel. And so the angel emerges from the stone. In fact, in their minds, the angel was already there. And Michelangelo saw David in the stone. And his goal was not to create David out of stone. It was to remove everything that wasn't David. And the only thing left at the end was David in all of his perfection. This is, this, this is David of David and Goliath fame, the giant killer. In fact, he's got the sling over his shoulder, and in his right hand, he has the stone that he's going to use to kill the giant. And Michelangelo's experiment here with this incredible statue was going back to the Greek artists and trying to create the picture of humanity at our best, the perfection of humanity. It's what he saw in the stone and removed everything that wasn't the perfect picture of humanity. It was a neat piece of art, of course, and it is what we hope to accomplish as we talk about the me that I want to be. We see who it is we want to be, and we try to get rid of everything that isn't that. We started this series by way of review with a little uh, mini creed, we called it. It said, there is a God, it's not me, and he adores me. That's how we started this series, and there's all sorts of great 
uh, information and thought and passion inside that little phrase that we can mine as we go through the entirety of this series, including this idea that God, who adores you, is actually working to transform you. He wants you to become who you were really meant to be, to remove all of the parts that aren't perfectly you. He's working this plan of transformation in our hearts, and what will result is us becoming who we were supposed to be in his perfect picture of us. John Ortberg, he says it like this, Jesus does not come to rearrange the outside of our life the way we want. He comes to rearrange the inside of our life the way God wants. And that's a shift in our thinking about how we approach God. He's not here to give us health, wealth, or prosperity. He's not here to make sure that you get that job or you get into that school or you get that promotion. He's not rearranging the outside of your life. He's here to transform us more and more from the inside so that we might become who we were meant to be. We also looked uh, after that at this idea of getting into the flow of God's spirit. And the Bible talks about this with different language. We can walk in the spirit. That's always a big one. Uh, we can abide in the spirit. But the idea is that we can get into the flow of what God is doing, what his spirit is doing every day in our lives. In fact, every moment of every day, we get to step back into the flow. Last week, Trevor spoke about the importance of a daily devotional life where we can actually get into the presence of God, let him do that transforming work through the power of God's word. So I'm assuming that if you're here this morning, that you actually want to become the best possible version of yourself, not some like self-help version or anything like that, but the version that God actually desires for you. Now, some of you, we know, may not be here for that. And I understand that. Maybe you're here because you were dragged here, or you were tricked, or you were bribed with bagels. We, just so you know, Beacon does not condone any deceitful methods that were used to get you here. But we really are glad that you're here. And we're glad uh, because we love making new friends, and we also believe that God's word has something for you. And if you give it a chance, if you if just... Open yourself up just a little bit. We'll see if God's word can impact and help you uh, kind of become the person that you actually really do want to be. And we are really happy that you're here. All right, so what is one of the greatest obstacles to becoming what God wants you to be? What would it be? What would be one of the greatest obstacles to become what God wants you to be? What's the thing that jumps into your mind? Yes, <laughs> me. That seems to be my greatest obstacle. I want to get up early to read and pray. I stay up late and watch TV instead. I want to go to the gym every single day. But I decide that maybe tomorrow is a better day to start. I want to definitely lose weight, but I decide that the cookie is just a little bit more appealing. And this is the pattern that we often run. I want to be patient, but I secretly harbor these aggravated thoughts about all of the slow pokes around me. I'm like, what are you guys doing? Move it. 
No, but I actually want to be patient. I want to be more generous, but I also really want to get that new gadget or the gizmo or whatever it happens to be. I want to be more attentive to my wife, but I can't stop fixating on my task list. You want to connect with your kids, but all of a sudden you have unrealistic expectations that sort of just ooze out of you. How many people can identify with this sense that you are your own worst enemy? So I want you to turn to the person next to you and tell them just that. You are your own worst enemy. Go ahead, turn to the person next to you. They need to hear it. Yep. In fact, the person behind you needs to hear it too. Turn to the person behind you and make sure you tell them that as well. You are your own worst enemy. It's the rebellion and it's the weakness and it's the pettiness and it's the pride and it's the anxiety. It's the shame. It's the selfishness. We make these stupid decisions. We have these destructive habits. We have mixed motives. And sometimes we screw things up not really knowing what happened. It just sort of hits us out of the blue. Other times it sort of sneaks up on us and, and pounces at the last minute. Other times we actually fully plan our own sinful escapades. This is what we do. We just, we, we forget, we neglect, we aggressively pursue all of these things that we don't want to. And the Bible calls this whole thing sin. Sin. That's the term that the Bible uses. And, you know, the archery metaphor, Trevor used it in the art. It's a great metaphor because sin is about missing the mark. Cornelius Plantinga, he in a great book called Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, he describes sin like this. He said, the Bible presents sin by way of major concepts, principally lawlessness and faithlessness, expressed in an array of images. Sin is the missing of a target, a wandering from the path, a straying from the fold. Sin is a hard heart and a stiff neck. Sin is blindness and deafness. It is both overstepping of a line and the failure to reach it, both transgression and shortcoming. Sin is a beast crouching at the door. In sin, people attack or evade or neglect their divine calling. These and other images suggest deviance. Even when it is familiar, sin is never normal. Sin is a disruption of created harmony and then resistance to divine restoration of that harmony. If we want to become the me that I want to be, then I need to figure out how to deal with sin. So how do we battle against sin? Open, if you would, in the Bible to John chapter 8, verse 31. John 8, 31, page 868. Last week, Trevor introduced us to this idea that eroding truth leads to eroding worship, leads to eroding behavior. Truth, worship, behavior. I think there's a slide there for it. Eroding truth leading to eroding worship, leading to eroding behavior. So if we want our behavior to change, then we need to replace the lies that we believe with God's truth. 
And so very often we go back, not simply focusing on the behaviors, but trying to get at the attitudes and the beliefs that we have about God or ourselves. Because if you try to change the behavior only, and I know many of you have tried this, I certainly have, if we only try to change the behavior, we very quickly fall back into our old destructive patterns. In fact, even newer, more insidious patterns might emerge. So we have to go after the truth and the, and the corruption of our worship. So the first great truth is found in John 8, 31. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So the first truth is that real freedom is found only in Jesus. It's found only in Jesus. Freedom actually comes from doing what Jesus wants us to do. Now, I'm not saying that he will promise you the most trouble-free life or the wealthiest life or the most pleasurable life or even the most peaceful life. He is promising us the most God-honoring life because we will become exactly who we were meant to be if we trust in him. And that will ultimately be the most rewarding life that any of us could ever attain on this life, in this life, and in the life to come. Now, I'm not really sure that we, mo that we really buy into this. I think most of the time we struggle with this. I think one of the fundamental reasons why we continue to sin is because we actually don't really believe that Jesus has our best interests at heart. We say, we say, well, I really, I know I shouldn't do this, but I really want to do this because I know it's going to be better for me, even though we know it's clearly not what God wants for, for us. But it's still in those moments feels like it's better for us. We just want to do it because of what it promises us in the moment. And there's a simple shift of mind, though, profoundly difficult to accomplish, but it's a simple shift to understand of us putting Jesus at the center of our existence. And if we don't, we're going to end up running from one thing to the next, to the next, to the next, looking for the kind of life that we want, but we will actually never find it because we would be running in the wrong direction of true freedom. Another truth that we need to learn is that sin leads to slavery. Verse 33. They answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves to anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So we are all slaves and that's not, of course, what any of us want to hear. We think, oh, I don't really feel like slaves, but Jesus assumes that even the uber-religious can end up being slaves to sin. You know, you can think about a rich guy. He says to himself, I've never had more financial freedom in my life. I, I have so much money now. I can do whatever I want, whenever I want, however I want to do it. So he thinks he's more financially free. And then the pressure, and then the fear of losing it, 
And then the constant nagging sense that you don't quite have enough. And then the competitive spirit comes in that you start to compare yourself to other people. And before you know it, you've become a slave to the very thing that you thought would have given you freedom. And this happens in so many areas. You have the academic, the thinker, the philosopher. And they say, you know, I finally shed those shackles of thought that had repressed me. Now I'm, I'm moving past them and I'm free now. And yet, if you are believing the wrong thing, you're twice the slave of it as you ever were. It has to be rooted in truth. Well, now you could become self-righteous and judgmental and critical of other people that don't get it like you get it. You become wrapped up in a new form of slavery. You have a businesswoman. She's at the top of the corporate world. She's shattering the glass. Nowhere to go but up. No, this, is, this is more freedom than she's ever imagined possible. And then there's the fear of being knocked down a rung or two. Then there's the expectation. Then there's the fact that so many people are looking to my model and my example. And you begin to feel the slavery that comes in. And this happens so many times. Now, I, I think this is perhaps one of the greatest lies that we believe, that sin is freedom. We think that's where we're going to really be able to find ourselves, that doing what we want, when we want, how we want, that's ultimate freedom. Like whenever you drive, I mean, don't you really wish that the rules were sort of suggestions, right? Stop signs with the white border, it's a suggestion, right? That's kind of how you, you never heard that? That was a Jersey thing. Stop signs with the white border are only suggestions, right? Because you don't really want the rules, you know, you try to, you have to, you have to sort of explain those things away. When I drive, I don't want the rules. I want to live, I want to drive how I want to drive. I want to experience the freedom that I was promised when I was going to get my license when I was 17. That, that's what I want. And I like to do that even now to this day. That's, you know, this is the way we, we want our freedom. You hear the one about the, the cop and the pastor. So the, the pastor, he gets his midlife crisis car and he puts the, the top down and he's zipping, you know, through the streets and he's enjoying his, enjoying his little, you know, his, his uh, new life and his new car. And he's speeding around, and all of a sudden he gets pulled over by a cop. And so the pastor, he decides to play the, the preacher card, right? And so he starts telling him he's a pastor, and he's dropping, like, you know, biblical references and holy language and stuff. And the cop, he's just quietly scratching out something on his pad. And so finally, as he keeps scratching, and he's just sitting there, the cop finally says, You know, son, remember Matthew 5, 7, blessed are the merciful, you know, for they will be shown mercy. Cop just glances at him and keeps scratching, scratching, scratching. He rips off, hands him the ticket, and he says, and remember, and the cop says to the pastor, remember John 8, 1, go and sin no more. <laughs> you know, that's, it feels like freedom until it isn't freedom anymore. Sin always leads to slavery. We see the path that leads to slavery so clearly in the addict. We can see it in this whole opioid epidemic, the heroin addicts. You get to see it. It doesn't, never does the addict start by saying, I really be, hope to be a slave to this thing. You never start that way. You start by thinking you experience all the freedom you want, enjoying whatever you want, not fearful of any sort of consequences, and you end up face down in the gutter wishing you had never started down the road. And we look at that and we go, oh my goodness, what a terrible situation, what a terrible life. There are some of the few people that actually know this truth. 
that have really embraced it because it is way more prevalent that we have become slaves to our sin than most of us are willing to admit. I know folks who no longer feel even the ability to resist sin. They just feel so conquered by it that they think, I just, there's no more use in even fighting it anymore. How many times have we heard the story, the guy who starts off, you know, looking at some pictures of some, some pretty women and all of a sudden it's leading him into pornography and now he's like, you know, it's a thing, but it's a secret thing and it's not really impacting anything and then he becomes desensitized and all of a sudden there's a lack of intimacy in the marriage and the wife is trying to figure out and she knows there's some sort of distance that's being created but doesn't know why and there's games that are going on in their minds and all of a sudden the discovery is made and he's outed and now there's hurt and shame and disappointment and frustration and now there's no... You've become a slave to the very thing you thought was bringing you freedom. You're like, oh, this is fun. This is nothing. This is no big deal. I'm going to do what I want when I want, regardless of what Jesus says. Think of greed. How many families have been wrecked because mom and dad need to have just a little bit more? Just a little bit of a bigger house. Just a slightly nicer car. Just a little bit more in savings. Sock a little bit more away into retirement. We just, we want our vacations. We just want to kick them up a notch or two. Stress on the family. Resentment among the kids. You become slaves to these things. We used to work in single adult ministry. And now, years later, a whole lot of those single adults we used to work with, this is back in Chicago, they grew up and they got married. They had kids. And how many of them would come to us and say, listen, I didn't realize this, but when I had a kid, it revealed how self-centered I was. And I was like, well, what do you mean? They say, well, they're so demanding. These little people, they just never let you have any time of your own, any space of your own, any. And it's like it took having a child before they could even begin to reveal what was going on in their own heart, how much of our lives is actually centered on and focused on us. You throw one of these little creatures in there and all of a sudden everything changes. Slavery to sin is a terrible place for the follower of Christ to find ourselves. Look at verse 38. He says, I'm telling you, this is Jesus, what I have seen in the Father's presence and you are doing what you have heard from your father. Abraham is our father, they answered. Jesus said, if you were Abraham's children, then you would do what Abraham did. As it is, you're looking for a way to kill me. A man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. You are doing the works of your own father. We are not illegitimate children, they protested. The only father we have is God himself. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I have come here from God. I've not come on my own. God sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you're unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he's a liar and the father of lies. I mean, how is that for a wake-up call getting at the seriousness of sin? When we sin, we are following after the destroyer of this world and we are doing his work. 
rather than the work of our Father. And if we continue in our slavery to sin, we will reap untold consequences in this life and the life to come. I just, I hate this picture that when I sin, I am doing the work of Satan. I just hate it. It's just, it becomes so frustrating a reality, but it's such a powerful truth to recognize. To be drawn back to what we ought to be doing. These are the truths from God's word that if we ignore them, we do so at our own peril. So what do we do? Well, we need to embrace the transformation. We can't fear the transformation process. That's key. You know, sometimes people think, oh, if, I, if I'm not careful, I'm going to lose myself. I don't want to be transformed. I like parts of who I am. And I certainly understand that because God, he made you, he adores you, and he isn't going to obliterate your personality or your drives. He's not going to do that. He's not going to make you into someone in the end that you will regret. So embrace this transformation process. I'm a pretty driven person, and I, I don't actually want to be an undriven person. I just, I, I, want, I, I want to be driven in the right way, toward the right ends, with the right goals. That's what I want. God will do that work and he'll purify who we are. I think that's what God does for each one. He's chiseling off every little bit of the stone that isn't supposed to be there. And this can be such a great gift we're being transformed by God. And he's trying to, to jostle and cajole and pry the worst parts of us out to leave behind the beauty and the perfection that he sees. We have to overcome temptation. I find it uh, somewhat ironic that when, when a hunter goes hunting, we use, uh, we, we, we use FOMO, right? So if you're hunting deer, we use scents that like things that smell that make the deer, uh, especially the bucks, think that there's like a doe in the area. And if we can make him think that there's like a really frisky doe in the area, even better, because even like old smart bucks get stupid. It sounds a lot like us actually, but, um, but they do. And the same thing goes with ducks. So with ducks, what we do is we, we put out duck decoys and, and we set them up like, like all over the place in front of us and we're hiding in the bushes and you set them up and then you have duck calls, and so you get a whole bunch of calls, and you're like, you know. <laughs> I, I act, mine always sound like a duck hospital because I'm not very good at it. But so what you're doing is you're saying, look, there's a little duck party going on over here, and you're all missing out on the duck party. You need to change your plans and come over here and have a party with all these happy ducks. That's what we do. It's a fear of missing out in the animal kingdom. And temptation tries to do this. It tries to get us to betray our deeper values for the fear of missing out on something. Sin doesn't tell you. Satan doesn't come along and tell you, hey, listen, come down this road, and I promise it's going to hurt. He never does that. You come on down this road, and I promise you're going to regret it. He's, never, he's like, there's a duck party going on over here, and you are going to miss out on it. So come on, fly over. And as soon as you fly over, he's like, bam. And you drop into the water dead. This is what he does. Now, sometimes we can avoid temptation. Other times we can't. 
but to recognize that that temptation is really a gift. That our father actually uses the temptation as one, he turns the enemy's tactics on himself and he uses the very temptation to help create us, to reshape us, to knock off some of those bits that aren't supposed to be there. And this is amazing to me that God will use the enemy's tactics to actually chisel off a little part that I want out. And you know what that's like. You know, you're struggling. You, you, you want to be a more patient person. What does God do? He fills your life with irritating people. Right? There's the temptation. It's the only way you're going to be able to grow in patience. And this happens in so many. You're thirsting for power. You're obsessed with achieving. Those temptations are actually the tools that God will often use. And in that way, your temptation can become a gift. Then we have to expose the sin. This means confessing it to God who is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And it means to confess it to each other. Trevor just talked about small groups. And we say, you know what? Small groups are one of the great ways to help form Christian community. Do you have Christian community somewhere in your life? Do you have a group of Christians where you get to actually talk about the things you're struggling with? In fact, small group leaders, let's think back to the last time someone came forward in your group to ask for prayer and support and encouragement in some area of sin, where they confessed. If you don't have that going on, your group hasn't achieved Christian community. It ought to be a regular part of our time with other Christians. Sin and temptation, they breed and get stronger in isolation, in the darkness. We need to bring them to light and we need to find the followers of Christ who are so grace-filled and wise that they can help us navigate this journey. And then don't try harder. You're going to want to write this down, but chapter 6 of John Ortberg's book, goes after this in a way that I won't be able to today. But, but the point of it is, you know, you try really hard. You try really hard. You push yourself, you push yourself, you push yourself. The only problem is trying harder fatigues us and it zaps our willpower. And eventually trying harder will lead to an epic fail. And the old habits take over. We're not talking here about simply trying harder. It's a short-term tactic. We got to try softer. We need to get back into the flow. We need to go back to the cross. We need to look for God's grace and experience his mercy. We go to confession so we remove the guilt and the shame that isn't ours anymore because of the beauty that is in us because of Christ. And when we find ourselves outside of the flow, it is usually a very short step to get back into the flow of the work that God is already doing in your hearts because he is always waiting and he is always ready to do the work if we yield to him. So that, that block of stone that, uh, we, you know, that originally became David, it was a massive hunk of stone. This is an image of it. It's not the literal stone, but... It was a massive hunk of stone, and here's what was amazing about it. It had already been started by multiple sculptors. Top-rated artists in Florence had been brought in to try to work on this massive, multi-ton stone. You know, it was three meters or four meters big in one direction, awkwardly shaped. And they quit. They stopped. They left the work largely unfinished, not even roughed out. 
other artists were brought in and they kept saying, what are we going to do with this massively large and expensive stone? And they said, oh, it's no good. The stone isn't right. The quality isn't there. It's got breaks in it and seams and creases that shouldn't be there. And it's hard to work with. This is not a good piece of stone. Multiple artists, top ranked, turned away until Michelangelo came in. And he saw something that no one else could see. And for two years, he shaped it into this epic perfection of humanity. And this is what, this is what God is doing. We're a big old lump of marble sitting in the back in the, in the rain and the elements. And he sees something that no one else sees in you. He sees this beauty and he sees this perfection. And he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to release it from that stone. And if it takes me years, I will never fail. I will never give up. I will never stop pursuing it. And that's what he sees in you. And he is going to keep chiseling it away. He's going to keep working it. He's going to see something in you and he is going to reveal something in you that only God can do. This is the beauty of trusting in him and of yielding our lives to let him shape us into the person that you were meant to be. I'm going to ask that the band come up and they're going to lead us in a time of of singing as well as in a communion. But as they do that, I just want to pray for each of us that we allow our hearts uh, to be more and more transformed like this. Would you guys... Uh, would you guys just pray with me? Lord, I'm just asking for each person here that you and you alone, you can see the beauty. You can see uh, the perfection. You've called us holy, a priesthood of believers, a holy people. It's an incredible promise. We are your spotless bride. All of this incredible language that you see that we know simply isn't true of us. And you say, no, it, but it is. You see it in us, Lord, and you are committed to doing this great work, revealing who we were meant to be in Christ, forgiven, increasingly free of sin. We ask, Lord, that you would cause our hearts to soften. Even now, as we sing and as we approach the Lord's table, we pray, Lord, that you would help us to experience the fullness of your transforming power. Even today, I pray that we would yield and, and let go of the many things that keep us from uh, who you want us to be. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.